Um, several weeks ago, I, I began preaching on Luke 4. When I got to verse 33, uh, we, we read that Jesus encountered a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. You might recall that this series that I'm preaching now came out of something that I saw in that very verse. It fascinated me. And I've been praying all day that I would be able to explain it the way that God showed it to me. It was actually the word demon in that verse that got my attention. I initially passed over it because I thought, like you do, that we all know what a demon is. I don't need to look up that word, Lord, I got it, I know what it is. And yet I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to get my Greek dictionary and look up that word demon. And when I did, this is what I found. And Sarah, if you could put that on the screen. The Strong's Concordance defines the word demon as spiritual agents acting in idolatry. And we know that idolatry is, is simply the worship of idols. The Greek definition goes on to say that the idol itself is nothing, but every idol has a demon associated with it who induces, who prompts, who provokes, and who tempts us to idolatry with its worship and sacrifices. So, so by way of definition there, now this is, this is not Rhea finding a demon under every bush. This is me taking a word directly out of the word of God and giving you the Greek definition. So by way of this definition, an idol itself doesn't have any power. It's the demon working behind it to entice, tempt, and provoke you and I to, to, that poses the threat in our life. So what exactly is an idol? That's important that we realize that. An idol is a person or thing that is loved more than God, that is feared more than God, that is sought after more than God. It's anything or anyone that rivals one's absolute devotion to God. It's anything that you and I have excessive devotion to that gets more attention in our life than God. Is anything coming to mind? But my favorite definition, and I believe the best one, is anything you bow down to other than God. Anything you give more power and influence in your life to rather than God. So, so demons are spiritual agents that act behind an idol in our life to entice us, tempt us, provoke us, prompt us to bow down to that thing instead of maintaining complete devotion to God. And once we do, a stronghold can be gained by the enemy. And I want you to pause, pause right now and ask yourself, what are the idols you bow down to in your life? What does the enemy use to entice you to, 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 to provoke you, to lure you away from complete devotion to God? What does he use to get your attention? It could be things like addiction, offense, oh, that's a good one, fear, anxiety, depression, work, social media, keeping a record of wrongs, unforgiveness, jealousy, envy, insecurity, materialism, popularity and the approval of man, gossip, malice, slander, criticism. Those are all idols that we bow down to, that we give more attention and more of our devotion to than God. Unless you should think he always uses bad things, he also entices with good things. Our children <laughs> and grandchildren. Worshiping them to a point where they become more important to us than God. Being fit, for example. No, I don't, this is not my idol. <laughs> Being fit and eating right. It's good to take care of our temple, but it can, we can become obsessed to a point that it gets more attention to God in our lives and, and, and it pushes out our time with God. Money, academia, sex. I work with men who, who have sex addictions. Tell me, let me tell you that they can take something that God has given as a gift and, and, and turn it into an idol that gets their devotion and their worship. An idol is really anything good or bad that the enemy can use to distract you and get you to turn your focus from God onto the thing and show excessive devotion to it. They're an attempt 
to turn our, our attention off of God, your only source of life, your only source of joy, your only source of peace, and get it onto something inferior in our life that will drain you of life. It's not the idol. The idol is just the tool that the enemy uses to gain access to your life through. It's the shiny metal object that he dangles in front of you to divert your attention and your focus. Let's use fear, for example. That can be an idol for some people. People find themselves bowing down to that, giving it all their attention, all of their devotion, all of their time and effort. It's a God for them. You say, well, Rhea, fear is not a God. It can be. When you are giving that thing more power and more attention than God, it is an idol by definition. So let's use fear just as an example. You substitute whatever idol it is that you struggle with here, but let's use fear. So the enemy brings the right circumstances into your life to entice you and get you to bow down to fear and anxiety. He, if he succeeds, you begin to give excessive devotion to the anxiety within you and the fear that drives it. And you begin to bow down to that instead of God's word. You give devotion to that instead of God's word. And as a result, it robs you of joy and it steals your peace. And eventually, you find yourself immobilized by it. And the enemy succeeds at getting your attention off of God and his promises and his goodness and onto your situation. Fear becomes an idol that the enemy and his spiritual agents can operate behind. Do you see how that works? Once we take our eyes off God and his promises onto that shiny metal object, whatever that idol is that he dangles in front of you, he can establish a stronghold in us and gain a place of operation. And it's all because we chose, down, we chose to bow down to that thing instead of to God. God says, I will have no other gods before us, before me. And, and so when we make something an object of our attention and our devotion, other than God, it becomes an idol. So instead of fear, substitute the idol of your choice, but do you see how it works? And here's the thing. We fall for it hook, line, and sinker, and then we think we're powerless against it, and we have to submit to the influence of those idols in our life. Take, take for example, addiction. There are people who are addicted, and it was because the enemy dangled that shiny red object, that shiny object in front of them, and they took the bait. They bowed down to that thing. They found themselves over and over and over bowing down and giving devotion and energy and attention to an addiction, and now before they know it, they're in snared by it, and the enemy uses that thing to say to them, you have to submit to it. You are powerless against it. But can I tell you, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living within you. You do not have to submit to any yoke of the enemy that he tries to put on you. But he wants to use that thing to drive your life. He wants to use fear to drive your life. He wants to use anxiety to drive your life. He wants to use bitterness and unforgiveness to drive your life. He, he wants to use jealousy and envy to drive your life. Let me tell you, dear one, you have no reason to fear jealous about anyone. You have been created in the image and the likeness of God. He has a purpose and a plan for your life that only you can do. You were created specifically for that reason. Don't you be jealous of anybody. There is no competition in the kingdom of God. But he wants, to think, he wants us to think we have to submit to that thing, that we're powerless to it. Many of you have heard me teach on the yokes uh, before, and, and it's, a, it's a teaching that I love because over and over and over we see in the word of God that he makes mention to yokes, uh, the yoke of your youth, the yoke of the enemy, his yoke. And, and in Bible times, farmers would put a wooden crossbeam called a yoke around the neck. Sarah, we have a picture of this. Around the neck of an animal, uh, usually an ox. And the farmer would use that yoke to guide and direct the oxen the way he wanted them to go. Oxen are big, they're powerful, and yet they've learned that they have to submit to this dinky little yoke that's around their neck and let it drive them. 
The oxen are trained very early in life to submit to that yoke. They start them out early with a stronger, a more experienced ox, and they, they yoke them together. And that little oxen learns that, that he has to submit to that yoke, that he can't get free of it. And even though the, 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 um, they're intimidated by the strength of the one they're tied to. And the longer the ox wears that yoke, the more accustomed to it he becomes. And in fact, he learns to replicate the pattern of the stronger ox. And eventually, he learns to submit to it and accept it. He gives up fighting against that yoke, and he conforms to it. What, what's fascinating to me is I read that oxen can be up to 3,000 pounds, and I have a wooden, uh, I have a friend who's given us a wooden yoke, and, and, and it's flimsy. It is not anything that a 3,000-pound oxen should submit to. But because that yoke was put on them as a young oxen, they think they have to submit to it. And there are many of you sitting here tonight night that a yoke was put on you as a child, that the enemy of your soul, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, when you were little, when you thought you were too weak, when you didn't think you had the power to overcome it, he came with a whisper, he came with a lie, he came with rejection, with abandonment, with, a, with something in your life that you learned was bigger than you. And now, as an adult Christian who has power from on high, you are still submitting to that yoke, thinking you are powerless against it because he's trained you to believe it. But let me tell you what, there's an anointing, the Bible says, that breaks every single yoke. And that anointing lives within you. And when you begin to rise up in the power and the authority that you have in Christ, the enemy will not be able to keep you bound any longer. Just like the farmer uses yokes to train oxen in order to direct and guide them, the enemy uses yoking tactics like the idols of addiction, lust, jealousy, abuse, sickness, and disease to keep you bound and yoked to oppressive spirits as a means to control your life and your destiny. But Jesus says, I want you to be yoked together with me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you're here tonight and you are under a heavy yoke of addiction, if you are under a heavy yoke of lust, if you are under a heavy yoke of unforgiveness and bitterness, if you are under a heavy yoke of depression and despair and hopelessness, let me tell you what, that yoke does not come from God. Jesus doesn't place burdens on you. He lifts them off of you. The burdens of fear, depression, sickness, poverty, anxiety, rage, hatred, addiction are not burdens from him. They're heavy yokes that the enemy placed on you. What are the symptoms of being under the influence of a yoke? It's when you're existing and not living. It's when your spiritual life is dried up and you've lost your passion for the things of God. Two, three, four weeks go by and you don't even care about attending church. When you keep returning to the same unhealthy behavior or unprofitable thought pattern and you can't seem to break it. When your joy is depleted and your peace is non-existent. When you can't seem to get victory over a sin or a fleshly desire. And when the life of God seems to be sucked out of you, that's evidence that you are under a yoke of the enemy. A yoke is a satanic instrument of oppression, and it's used to limit destiny and purpose. It's a tool that the enemy uses to hinder a person's spiritual growth and breakthrough. It can be as simple as pain and heartache. And it, the, anything that removes our eyes from God and his promises onto our situation, the pain becomes an idol we bow down to and the object of our attention. And then the spiritual agent, the demon, behind it rushes in and he amplifies and exasperates our pain, making you think they're too big even for God. That's how he works. A yoke is really a symbol of submission and slavery. The bondage of sin and the lure of the enemy will cause you to give in and, and think you have to submit to it. And when you choose to submit to bondage, you make the decision to stay in bondage. The Bible says, do you not know that if you continually surrender yourselves to anyone to do his will, you become the slave of him who you obey? Slaves do not make decisions on their own. 
They have a master driving them. And some of you have submitted to a yoke of the enemy that he uses to drive you and control you. He wants you incapacitated by the yoke, thinking you have no option but to surrender to it. The only way to deal with the yoke is by utter destruction. The anointing that breaks Every yoke. Can I tell you, the Christ in you is more powerful than any yoke or stronghold that he tries to use to keep you bound. Let me ask you, are you burdened down tonight? If you did an honest inventory of your life, would you say that there are internal battles that you're fighting that seem to leave you defeated and squeeze the life out of you? Do you find vicious cycles repeating over and over in your life that, that you seem to be powerless against? Do you, do you feel that something has influence on your life and it's hindering you spiritually and robbing you of peace and well-being? What we've been talking about week after week, there is an unseen battle taking place in your life. This series is not to meant to make you freak out about demons or make you fearful in any way. It is to make you aware. The Word of God says that my people perish for lack of knowledge. And, and, and we have a real enemy who is contending for your mind, your will, and your emotions. And for some of us here, he is winning that battle. You've rolled over in defeat. And, and, and we cannot be ignorant of his schemes. So many of us haven't been trained to war. And so we sit back idly and submit to every yoke that the enemy tries to place on us. And so for the next couple of weeks, we are going to begin looking and exposing some of the ways that the enemy tries to place an inflicting yoke upon our lives. The first one I want to look at is found in Acts 16. So turn there with me. There's Acts and then there's Romans. So if you get to Romans, you've gone too far. First and Second Corinthians come after that, so it's, it's before that. Um, Acts 16, and I want to talk to you about a spirit of divination. Dick Denny gives an illustration that I love. He, he talks about a little boy who went to a local zoo, and, and on the way he picked up several rocks. And arriving at the polar bear con, uh, compound, he waited until the bears were not watching. Then he threw a large rock at a bear who was sleeping and hit it smack dab in the middle of the head. The bear did not know where the blow came from, and so when he awoke, he, he assumed that a nearby bear had hit him. The injured bear then hit the next closest bear, and the fight was on. The heartless boy stood by and took joy in watching the bears fight each other. And I read that, and I thought about Satan. Because in the same way, Satan throws his rocks at our mind, the fiery darts, his fiery darts at our minds, and then he steps back to watch the fallout. And we actually think it's about another person, and we strike out to, to hurt them back. His rocks come in the form of nasty, unkind, careless words, critical words, irritable words, cutting remarks, and he hopes, like that little boy, to catch you sleeping unaware with your guard down. And at just the right time, he slings his rocks right at the target of your mind. And ignorant and unaware, we forget that we don't fight against flesh and blood. We react, and we react with fleshly weapons at the closest bear in our vicinity and not at the enemy who threw the rock to begin with. When we do that, we're prime for a yoke of unforgiveness for a yoke of offense, for a yoke of hatred or rejection or bitterness to be placed on us. So do you see how it works? I want to remind you tonight that your battle is never, ever, ever against flesh and blood. We need to train our minds to remember that truth. We are at war and we cannot afford to be caught sleeping. And we certainly can't be fighting the wrong kind of battle. I want to quickly show you how, how sneaky our enemy can be. It, it, we're going to go through this quickly because I've been alluding to it for the last couple weeks. But turn to Acts 16, verses 16 through 17. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed Mysia and went down to Troas. 
During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. I want you to see in this passage that Paul wanted to go someplace else. He had another plan for his life, but the Holy Spirit kept him from going that direction. In fact, he tried several times to go another way, but, 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 but the, the Spirit of God hindered him. And then the Word says that he had a supernatural vision of a man from Macedonia. And, and so in obedience to God, and what was a strategic move of the Spirit, he set sail for Macedonia. Now, you need to know this was strategic because Macedonia was the gateway to Europe. And Paul's visit there, God knew this, would open the door to the spread of the gospel into Europe. So Christianity would move into Europe because of this trip. And so do you see why the Spirit hindered him, hindered him, hindered him, hindered him from doing his own thing. And then the door swung wide open to what God wanted him to do, and he went in obedience. So Paul's visit there was going to open the door, it's important that you see this, to the spread of Christianity in Europe. It was strategic, and the enemy knew it. Paul had a purpose, he had a destiny, a call from God, and the enemy was not unaware. And let me tell you what, you have a purpose. You have a strategic destiny. You have a reason that God has called you. And, and, and the enemy wants to hinder that. He wants to hijack that. Look what happens next. Paul was meeting with a small group of Jews, actually women, who were meeting by the riverside. Apparently, there were not enough men. Davey, I think it takes 10 men Ten men for a synagogue. Apparently, there were not enough men to form a synagogue, so they met together by the river to worship. And that's where Lydia comes into to play. And, and, and that tells me that it was mostly women by the river, and, 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 and they must have been prime for the gospel because the Spirit of God directed Paul that way. And so I, I want to continue with this story. So he meets Lydia and, and these women by the, the uh, river, and he shares the gospel with them. Uh, in verse 16, it says, Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by for fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, this is Luke talking, cried out saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. I want you to notice that the enemy, the spirit that was operating behind this young girl, attacked Paul at a strategic time. Notice what he was doing. He was on his way to prayer. And it was when he was on his way to prayer that he was attacked by this demonic force. It was a force sent to do what we talked about, to distract and to disrupt him in his prayer life. But notice he didn't give in to it. Can I just tell you that the enemy will always try to distract and hinder our communication with God. So here we see him doing hijacking Paul's prayer life. And he's doing that because he understands that an army without effective communication will be defeated. Prayer is vital for any follower of Christ. And we see this in, in Luke twenty two thirty nine 39, when Jesus is on his way to the cross and he, and he tells his, uh, his disciples to stay there and pray that they would not fall into temptation. And, and he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond that and he knelt down to pray and that's when he was praying and drips, drops of blood came from his forehead. And when he rose from prayer and he went back to the disciples, he, he found them asleep and exhausted from sorrow. And he said, why are you sleeping? He said, get up and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. Jesus is giving us a picture there of the importance of prayer to keep us from temptation. That is the secret to overcoming temptation. But sadly, when we are in the midst of trials and temptations... Like the disciples, most of us won't be found praying, we'll be found spiritually sleeping. 
Priscilla Schreier says, prayer is a divinely authorized mechanism God has given us to tap into his power. Without prayer, we'll be ineffective in spiritual warfare. But with it, we will be victorious. You see, the enemy knows that. He knows the power behind prayer. And he works overtime to divert us and hijack our prayer life. He uses situations and problems like he did with Paul to try to divert our attention and, and get it off of the spiritual. Paul's on his way to prayer. His mind's on the spiritual. And this voice, this, this girl that's under the influence of a demonic spirit is trying to divert him and distract him from that spiritual thought. We cannot afford to be moved by the natural. Because when we're moved by what we're seeing in the natural, we'll be tempted to use natural weapons to fight it. It's a war. And we cannot be unaware of the unseen forces fighting against us. Schreier says the effects of the war going on in the unseen world reveal themselves, listen to this, in strained and damaged relationships, emotional instability, mental fatigue, physical exhaustion, and many other areas of life. Many of us feel pinned down by anger, unforgiveness, pride, comparisons, insecurity, discord, and fear. And the list goes on. But the overarching primary nemesis behind all of these outcomes is the devil himself. He wants you and I bowing down to those things and giving our attention to those things and not using our spiritual weapons. Prayer is how heaven invades earth. It's what opens the floodgates for God to come down and be involved in our everyday circumstances. And the enemy doesn't want that. And so he will attack our prayer life every single time. And that was his first step to annihilate Paul and Silas, to hijack their prayer life. Look at the second. Look at Acts 16, verses 16 and 18. Now he's going to hijack their focus. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. I want you to see that Paul was greatly annoyed. That word annoyed is a really strong word in the Greek. It means irked, but it also means offended. Paul was offended. And can I tell you, the enemy wants to divert your focus. He wants you to get offended by a person and not realize that he's the spiritual agent operating behind it. Do you see that? And so Paul was not unaware. Even though he was irked, he recognized who it was that was working behind that offense the enemy of his soul. And so he, he uh, commanded that spirit out of her. Well, you say there was nothing wrong with what she was doing, Rhea. She was simply announcing the truth. The truth was they were, uh, they were talking about salvation. But, but the words of the slave girl were not given by the Holy Spirit. As you know, prophecy is one of the gifts of the Spirit. It saddens me that the church, we're not seeing that gift operate in the church like we should. I believe the gifts of the Spirit should be in operation in the church. I believe the gifts of the Spirit is what edifies and builds up the body of Christ. And, and we should be seeing those gifts in operation. However, for everything God has a real of, the enemy has a counterfeit of. And this was the counterfeit operation of the gift of prophecy. It was a counterfeit spiritual gift at work, and Paul understood it. It's so important, church. I'm just going to tell you this. Some of you love to chase after prophets. Some of you are always looking for a word of God, but I'm telling you it is risky. We, we've got to pray for discernment because not every voice that speaks into your life is of God. I'm concerned about people who run after every prophet looking for the words. There are authentic prophets, but there are also false ones, and we need discernment. Look at verse 18. Paul was greatly annoyed. 
and he turned and spoke to the spirit. Notice he wasn't annoyed at the girl. He was annoyed at the spirit that was operating behind it. And he cast the demon out immediately. At what People say, well, why didn't Paul do it? You know, it says she continued to follow him. Why didn't Paul do it the first time? And, and as I, I thought about that this week, I read a lot of commentators that said why they thought. But here's what I think. I think Paul initially didn't think that's a demonic spirit operating behind that woman. He, like us, was caught unaware, and then he, he, he began to, to realize where the battle was, and he fought it in that area. The Bible says that this girl was possessed by the spirit of divination. That word possessed, Sarah, I think we have a slide. It means to have, to hold. Here's what I really like. To hold possession of the mind. To own, to possess, to hold oneself or to find oneself so-and-so, to be in such and such a condition, to closely join to a person or a thing. She was possessed by the spirit of divination. Remember our, our definition of demon. It means a spiritual agent had gained influence in her mind. It found a place to act. Lest you should think all this demonic stuff is for the birds and that I'm just pulling out scriptures here and there, let me tell you this word possessed is used 709 times in the New Testament. 709 times. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God wants us to give careful thought to what has a hold on us or what gains influence in our mind. It designates possession or ownership. She, she, she had or possessed a spirit of divination. This word divination, oh, it's so interesting. It's the Greek word where we get our word python. It's puthon, it's pronounced. And it comes from the root puthos. Puthos was the name, hear this, of the region of Delphi, uh, the seat of the famous oracle, where, where the seat of the famous oracle was located. In ancient Greece, an oracle was a priest or a priestess who made statements about future events about, or about the truth. It was pagan. It was demonically influenced, but it was an oracle. It's not a mistake that Luke uses this word to describe the kind of demon that possessed this girl. She was under the influence of the enemy, and Luke is making sure we know that. He uses this word putho, puthon. It's where we get our word python. Oh, this is so good. Because the python, you will know, is the largest snake that, that, there, that there is. It is, it is a massive uh, snake. And Satan, of course, is known as the serpent. And I believe that Luke intentionally used this word to describe both the spirit and its influence that it has on other people and on the one it possesses. So as you know, the, the python, just to give you some background on a python, a python does not immediately kill its prey. It, it, it really watches its victim. It, it, it slithers unsuspectedly in, into its path. It, it's interesting that, that when I was reading about pythons this week, I found out that most victims of a python, when, it, when they see it, freeze in fear. And, and they become immobilized by that fear, and therefore they become an easy target for the, for the python. And eventually the python strikes out. Its, its bite is not venomous. It just is a bite. And that bite catches them off guard. And then the python slowly and methodically begins to wrap itself around the unsuspecting victim. And its goal is, it's still alive at that point, its goal is to squeeze the very life out of it, to suffocate the air that's in it. it wants to choke off its breath and, and keep it from getting air. Now, I'm going to draw the comparison to the python spirit in our own life. What's air symbolic of spiritually? Breathe breath of life. It's, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit bringing life to us. What's the air? The air of the Holy Spirit just sweeping through this place. And that is what the enemy is after in your life and mine. He's after our spiritual breath. He's after our spiritual life. And he is methodical about how he does it. 
And he wants to catch you off guard. And he slithers into your life through one of those idols. And he tries to, to choke out the life within you. It's interesting to me that that word divination, it's where they call it the ventriloquist spirit. Oh, my God. Goodness, I, I've talked to you ab about this, but but you know, I, I have a been, I had a, a a dummy when I was a little girl growing up. I asked Dave if we could find it, but it's buried too deep in our basement. But I, I had this th this this dummy that was called Willie, and, and and I wanted to be a ventriloquist. Little unsuspecting girl would even want to be like that. I I have no idea why, but but I my mom and dad bought me this dummy, and and it had this handle inside of, of its body that you could squeeze and it would make its mouth move. And I, I was trying to learn to throw my voice because I, I wanted it to, you know, I would keep my mouth shut and I would try to make it sound like it came out of Willie. Dave likes this um, comedian, uh, Jeff Dunham, and, and he tells jokes with the dummies and he makes the dummies be the one that's doing the talking. And if you watch him, I'm telling you, you can't even see his mouth move and it sounds like the voice is coming out of that dummy, but really it's not. It's Jeff Dunham's voice. And the dummy is just a dummy that's used to make people think it's coming from him. Your enemy, the one who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy you. The one who wants to, who is a python and wants to wrap his coils around your mind and your head and choke out the very life within you, uses dummies. Somebody who he can catch unaware, somebody who has no idea that, that they are vulnerable to the influence of the enemy, somebody who he can catch uh, off guard, and, and he can throw a rock right at your mind, and he, you wake up from your sleep, and you actually think it was the other person doing the speaking that, that hurts you, but it was the, they were just a dummy. They were a dummy that was used by the enemy of your soul to get to you. He is a ventriloquist. He's a ventriloquist. Their mouth was moving, but he was the spirit operating behind it. Idol. Spiritual agents operating behind an idol, enticing you, drawing you, luring you. So, if your idol is offense, if you're going to bow down and be offended because of what somebody said to you, I'm going to tell you, dear one, you bow down to an idol that's going to become a yoke in your life and it's going to keep you in bondage because you actually think it was about that person who said those horrible words to you. It wasn't. It was about, they were a dummy. It was about the ventriloquist behind it. Their lips were moving, but it was the enemy. It was the, the force, the spiritual agent operating behind them to get to you. Don't throw a rock at the wrong person. Throw a rock at the enemy of your soul, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Learn how to fight these battles. The python spirit is a twisting spirit. If you look up that word, it talks about a twisting. Do you know what happens? Sometimes Leslie will talk to me. We're best friends, but sometimes she'll say something to me, and by the time it leaves her mouth, the enemy twists it, and I hear it differently, and I take offense. And then I meditate on that, and I play it over and over in my head, and he begins to separate and cause division because he's a twisting spirit. Remember, ventriloquist used her lips to twist the words to get to me. And I took the bait. And when I take the bait, something happens. Look at this. Turn over. This is so good. I, I don't want you to miss this. Turn over to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Oh, so good. Verses 4 through 5. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Do you know that the python, that's what we're talking about here, the python lays the most eggs of any other serpent. Some, uh, some of the, the um, articles I referenced said a python can lay up to 100 eggs in one sitting. 
I, I want you to, and Lord, help me to draw this parallel here. But uh, the python, when it lays its eggs, the python will coil around it to protect them. And it'll kind of brood over it. And that's what's incubating the eggs. If at any time the python detaches and leaves those eggs exposed, the eggs die. Okay? But if it continues to breed and incubate those eggs, hundreds of baby pythons are born. Look at that scripture. No one calls for justice, nor does anyone plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch viper eggs and weave a spider's web. He who eats the eggs dies, and from that a, a viper appears. So when the enemy twists words, when he uses people unaware to be a mouthpiece to speak into your life, and you take the bait, gets to lay his eggs in your head, in your mind. And if you're unaware, he can incubate those eggs. He can coil around you. You can rehearse that garbage in your head. You can meditate on it. You can lose life because of it. You can get drained of, of your joy and your peace just because you're rehearsing the lies that he said to you, the things that were said to you, the offense you took. And, and, and those things start to incubate in your mind. And now one offense turns into this massive uh, 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 bondage and stronghold in your mind that incapacitates you and drains you of life. Do you see how it works? There's a reason Luke calls this a python spirit. The greatest battle for your well-being and mine is right here in our head. It's not just against the enemy of our soul in the unseen realm. It is really between our ears. It's in the mind. And we have to be purposeful about casting down imaginations and taking every thought captive. Otherwise, those python eggs will hatch and begin to choke the life out of it. And, and, and we cut the enemy off and get him to uncoil around those eggs <laughs> so they die by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and casting down imaginations. But when we come into agreement with him, Man, that just heats up those eggs and incubates them. Do you know that the word repent means to change your mind? That when you repent, when I repent, the actual Greek definition is a change of mind. It's time, church, to begin to change our thinking. We, we need to change the way we think about our, our idols. We need to change our mind about what we make an idol. We, we need to change our mind about our addiction. We need to change our mind about our fear. We need to change our mind about anxiety. We need to change our mind about unforgiveness. Because when we realize that there is a, there is a weapon, an enemy, a spiritual agent working behind those things, we will change our mind about them. The python, I was reading about the environment because I wanted to know how they got here because I, I know that pythons aren't native to the U.S., and yet there are some here that they really like the Florida Everglades, and uh, they're actually native to Southeast Asia, and they were brought here by pets and uh, to be used as pets. But, but, but as I read this week, I realized that temperature is really important for pythons to thrive in. A python, for example, would never survive. We don't need to worry about them being here in Wisconsin. They would never survive a Wisconsin winter. It's too cold. However, they found a climate that's ideal for them in the Florida Everglades. They need a hot and a wet climate. They have inability to thrive in other climates. Oh, I love this. Jesus, God says in Revelation 3.16, I, I would prefer <laughs> that you were hot or cold, but you are lukewarm, and I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You see, lukewarm water is neither hot or cold. It, has been, it was hot at one time, and it grew cold, and now it's lukewarm. And lukewarm water is comfortable. It's a picture of a comfortable Christian. It's a picture of 
of someone who has grown, grown just comfortable, that isn't passionate and on fire for God. It's a picture of an average Christian. And Jesus says, uh, you know what? It makes me so sick, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You don't vomit unless you're sick. And he was saying, lukewarmness makes him sick. He said, I would sooner that you be hot or cold. Cold as you've never been touched by God. It's an, un, it's an unbeliever. He said, I would even prefer that you were an unbeliever than a lukewarm Christian. You see, hot, somebody that's been set on fire by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so when I talk about pythons thriving in, in hot temperatures, you know what an unbeliever is? You're not going to see python spirits at work in their life. You're not going to see python spirits at work in a lukewarm Christian's life because they, they, they've already choked out the life in a, in a lukewarm Christian. But prime climate is somebody that's on fire for the Lord. Somebody that's passionate about the things of God. You're a prime target for that python to be at work in your life. And, and, and we cannot be unaware. Lastly, we see the enemy trying to hijack Paul and Silas's destiny. Look what happens. Paul commands the spirit of divination out, and immediately the Bible says that they were thrown into, they, they were dragged before the magistrates, they were, they were beaten, they were given stripes, and they were thrown into a prison. And I thought all they were trying to do was obey God and follow his will. And then they get persecuted and imprisonment comes. Can I promise you, when you are trying to do God's will, when you're trying to obey his word, persecution and imprisonment will come. You'll take spiritual beatings like you, you, you can't even imagine. And you cannot be unaware. And so Paul and Silas were, were, were thrown into prison. And that's not what matters in this story. What matters is what they did when it came. The enemy did not want Paul and Silas fulfilling their purpose in Philippi. He had to hijack it. And remember, God sent them there because Macedonia was the gateway to Europe. God wanted to use him to open up a door of the gospel to Europe, and the enemy would have none of it. And so he made sure that he got imprisoned, hoping to hijack the destiny. Can I tell you that the enemy is threatened by you grabbing a hold of your destiny and your purpose. There is a territory that he is sending you to to take for him. I, I, I have been, I've been begging God. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I, I preach my heart out. You have no idea how much I study to preach on Monday nights. You, you have no idea the amount of hours and study time that go into this. And I'm saying, Lord, where are the people? Where are the people? I'm preaching truth. People should be coming in droves. You put the bread out, the hungry will come. Where are they, Lord? And the Lord has shown me that there is a spirit that rests over this territory that we have got to begin fighting. I believe it's a spirit of religion. I, I believe it's a hindering spirit. I believe it's a principality. I will go that far that is hindering the word of God. I beg God to move me. I've said, Lord, take me to Florida. I want to go to Florida. I want to go where people come in droves to hear your word. What is going on that you have me in Wisconsin? But I'm telling you, there is a territory assigned to you from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that before you were born, he called you to, that he appointed you, that he purposed you, that he gave you a destiny that only you can fulfill, and the enemy hates it, and he will try to hijack that destiny. He will try to bring discouragement. He will try to bring the voices of other people to, to, to hijack your, your focus, to get you to focus on the wrong thing, and you cannot be unaware. You cannot be unaware. The enemy wanted to hijack Paul and Silas's uh, uh, destiny, their, their purpose for being in Philippi, but I love what happens. The Bible says that they were thrown into jail and, and at midnight. You see, midnight is symbolic in the word of God. It means the darkest part of your life. See, some of you are in dark parts of your life right now, and you are submitting to what the enemy wants to put on you. You are buying into his yoke. You are submitting and bowing down to the idols that he's placed in front of you and dangled in front of you to keep you in bondage. But I'm telling you, it's midnight for you. And Paul and Silas tell us what to do at the darkest part of our life, at the darkest part of the day, when things are hopeless, when persecution comes, when trials overwhelm us, when we 
have been beaten and knocked down. The thing to do is not to submit to that thing that the enemy has brought, but to praise the Lord and worship him. At midnight, they began to sing, and they began to worship the Lord, and they understood the sovereignty of God. They thought, if I'm in a prison, it's because you put me here, and there must be something you want me to do. See, some of you are looking at the prison in your life, and you're questioning God's goodness. You're questioning God's faithfulness in your life, but can I tell you, if you are in a dark moment, it's because God has a purpose and a plan for that dark moment. Praise him. Praise him. Worship him. And watch the prison doors go flying open. Watch the shackles start falling off of your life. I'm promising you this works. You cannot be unaware. You cannot be unaware. He's a schemer. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He's a liar. And he is a ventriloquist working in the dummies in your life to use them to get to you. Good stuff. We cannot be unaware. We've got to stop giving place to the devil. Remember, giving place is giving him an occasion to act in our life. He has absolutely no power in our life except what we give him, what we surrender to him. We have got to begin growing up in our spiritual walk. We've got to start believing God's word. We've got to, 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 to start um, being unaware of the enemy, uh, being aware of the enemy's schemes and not giving him a place to act in our life. He trains our hands for battle and our fingers to war. He's given us weapons to use, and we must begin to utilize them. It is an unseen battle. It's a battle in the heavenlies. It's not here on earth, and we've got to stop trying to fight them. Can I tell you, he's a yoke breaker. If you're here tonight and you are under a heavy yoke of the enemy, turn to him. Ask him to break that yoke in your life, to set you free. Begin an inventory and looking at the idols that you're bowing down to in this world that you are giving excessive devotion to. What's occupying your time and your energy and your money and your talents and Where's your devotion? Because he won't have any other gods before him. So let me pray for you as Megan closes. Father, I thank you for my friends. I thank you that you're making us aware, that you're leading and you're guiding us into all truth, Lord God, that you're granting us revelation and insight to the secret things of God. Lord, I'm asking you to take us up higher, to lead us in deeper. Lord, I want to know you better. I don't want to be familiar with your deeds. Lord, I, I want to be familiar with your ways. I want to know the way you work. I, I want to know your heart, Lord God. I, I, want to, I want to think your thoughts. Lord, take us up higher with you. Lord, make us aware. As we go throughout this week, Father, I pray that you'd make us sensitive to the things of God, that you'd make us sensitive to the voice of your spirit guiding and directing and calling us up higher. Let us fix our gaze on you, on the things above and not on the things of this earth. Get our eyes off the natural, Lord, and onto your supernatural power. We love you, Lord, and we give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.